got a really sore shoulder today, Mike. Oh, that's a shame. Hey, you're empathising with me. Thanks for that. Oh, you're very welcome. You could have asked your cat. But cats don't empathise, do they? Well, let's get somebody in who knows far more about cat and dog empathy than you or I. Who's that? Karen Highstead. She's waiting on the end. Let's get her in. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Ho. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. We interrupt the show for an important announcement. Hi there, dedicated listeners. We just wanted to take a little time outside of the show as we've got something very exciting to share with you. We have exclusive Veterinary Ramblings merchandise available now, including T-shirts, mugs, posters and prints. Now, personally, I think my favourite is our T-shirt with a hilarious diagram of cat anatomy, yep. which has been revised to include their sandpaper tongue and treat-detecting ears. And essential for all veterinary students. If you would like to show your support for the show, head over to veterinaryramblings.com and select either the merch button for a one-off purchase through our T-Mill store or select Become a Patron. I'm sure you'll be absolutely chuffed to know that everything on our T-Mill store is fully sustainable, carbon neutral and shipped in plastic-free packaging. By making a one-off purchase, you will help us to plant more trees, save water and reduce carbon emissions. If you want to further support us, become a Patreon and receive items you cannot get through one-off purchasing. A shout-out on the show, an exclusive Veterinary Ramblings content. Every single purchase made will really help us keep on interviewing amazing guests. But if nothing else, we do appreciate you tuning in. Now. Now. On with the show. There we go, so we're back. You see how we ramble, it works, doesn't it? It's more of an odyssey, isn't it? Because you're in Greece now. And and I don't know if our listeners know this, that actually, uh, I'm in the same place I always am. I'm stuck in my office here and it's raining. Um, But Mike and and our lovely guests uh, are on the the wonderful Greek island of Rhodes, which is warm and pretty and dry and probably smells of oregano yeah okay okay fair enough julian that's absolutely fine let's let's put this in perspective because you're sounding just a little bit bitter i've got a can of flat coat yeah yeah we're both here to work we're here at the international society of feline medicine meeting which just happens to be on roads yeah so we're we're what time's the welcome drinks tonight sorry just you're there to work you're there to work sorry uh we started on massey university uh, yeah. Which, uh, of course, you went to. I did. Twice, in a way. Twice? Well, yeah, I did two degrees, because I did my vet degree there. Mm. And then I did um, a psychology degree, but mostly by distance, because Massey sort of cottoned on to this whole distance learning, like, way back in the day. But um, before I got into vet, I failed to get into vet, because I, I got a boyfriend instead and didn't get, <laughs> didn't get in. So I had to faff around for a year or so doing other courses, trying to get high grades so I could segue back into that. It's kind of, it works a bit differently out there. But I did psychology when I was faffing around. And oh. I can't remember now. I, I, re, I started it again in 2013. And I, I mean, I started that degree in 1996 mm-hmm. and I finished it in 2014. So I think that's the longest time it's taken anyone to do a degree, perhaps. That's a bad Yeah, I did vet school and then a whole career of being a clinical vet and then finished a psych degree. And um, But yeah, by distance. So but yeah, it was great. I'm really glad I waited, actually, because quite a lot happened in the world of psychology in those intervening years, like fMRIs kind of happened. Mm. So I'm really delighted to have done like the bulk of this, a psych degree in the you know 20 teens rather than back in the 90s because you know i learned rather a lot more i think by doing it that way fmri karen what is fmri what's an mri on the top on the on the front of it yeah it's rather revolutionized you know our understanding of the brain and that's how that works i don't know People, you put people in a brain scanner, make them make them look at pictures or feel things or listen to things or whatever, and then you can see which bits of the brain are lighting up and doing stuff. And they've trained, I can't remember where it is. I want to say Vienna, but it could be could be the Hungarians have trained a group of dogs to tolerate sitting in one as well. 
um, which is super cool, mostly retrievers and collies because other kind of dogs you can make sit still, mm. um, to sit still so that they can, get to, they can do it to their brains as well and do things like, you know, show them videos or pictures of their owners or all sorts of things to look at their, you know, where emotions are happening or where things are happening in their brains. It's all very nifty. Yeah, of course, we're going to be really depressed if we, if we find out that when dogs see pictures of their owners, they really think, bastard, when's the fucker going to feed me? Yeah. <laughs> Rather than, oh, I love him, I'll do anything for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's the fat bull git, when's he going to feed me? Go on. Yeah. Oh, I suppose I'm going to look happy to see him. Yeah. I think, not, not to offend people out there, but I think it depends probably whether it's, you know, what kind of dog it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I think I've known a couple, and they're, they're probably. You, I think you've hit something there. It's probably fat bastard. Looks like he's eating all the bloody dinner. When am I going to get mine? <laughs> look, look cute. Oi, oi, oi! Look cute. Do the eye thing with the ears. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So, okay, can we can we wind back a bit, Carolyn? Because so. So I'm, I'm trying to work this through chronologically. So, so vet came first. Yeah. Psychology interceded. Yeah. Vet. Well, I did. I did a whole sort of career as a clinical vet first. Right. Because yeah. vet school, I, I well, like I thought most people, though people seem a bit different these days. Vet school harmed me. So I, yeah, I wasn't keen to go back into education for a good ten years. You know, I needed I needed a good break from exams and uni for about 10 years but then the first time anyone's actually said vet school harmed me yeah in, in what in what way can we ask can you share that with us it's quite it's six quite intensive years of no the, the way it was done in New Zealand yeah there's no breaks there's no electives there's no um intercalating and all that kind of concept wasn't a thing back when I went to vet school in the 90s it probably is now but it wasn't then so it was just a funnel. You just uh, worked really hard and it was very singular driven. You know, you, you, you memorized everything and you were going to go out and you were going to pull calves and PD cows. And, you know, that's the New Zealand vet way. And, you know, off you went and you sort of got unleashed on the world and you had to do it. And there wasn't much discussion of, you know, this whole veterinary passport idea or the idea that you could do other things with your degree. You were trained to do clinical work and that's what you ended and anything other than that was, I mean, no one quite said the word failure, but there was definitely that vibe, like, you know, we're training you to be clinical vets, get out there and do it. And mm. so, yeah, I went out there and did it for a while. But, uh, so a bit like a, a, a science army course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yep. And overalls and gum boots and arm length gloves. We were an army of... Yeah, putting our arms faces because because being I came from a dairy farm as well and and just the yeah vet school at, at Massey at that time was very agricultural and I hope it still is and you know some people did go off into small animals but the majority of us went into mixed like the vast majority and you know it was all about cows 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 like people make jokes about New Zealand and sheep but vets don't see sheep in New Zealand they're not worth anything <laughs> you know so a vet never gets called I never I don't think I, I treated one sheep in my two years as a vet in New Zealand, mm. once. Whereas, I mean, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of carbs I pulled out and prolet, you know, just, it was just dairy, 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 dairy. So Gosh, that's, that's yeah. where the vet so we, never, we never hear that side of New Zealand, do we? It's all no. Yeah, no, it's not shit. It's cows. It's, it's The dairy industry is massive and it's where the money is. You know, each cow is actually worth something, so it's worth calling a vet out and there's no mm. subsidy. So, you know, a sheep, as a unit, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. is not worth enough for a vet's fee. So you know, children do lambings, not vets. You know, <laughs> it's a child's job. What? Whereas when I came here, because well, they've got small hands. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, they've got small hands. It's, it's easier. So I came here and I worked in Scotland, worked in the Outer Hebrides, and suddenly I had to do sheep and do all these lambings and sheep caesareans and prolapses and I had never done them before, but I discovered that it's the most fun in the world. Like it's all the cow stuff, but small and yeah. lovely and comfortable and not so physically demanding. And yeah, fell in love with sheep, really. Scotty Blackface sheep are absolute legends. They're the best things in the world. They're, they're, they're amazing, aren't they? See, so the, the Outer Hebrides, that's an interesting yeah. choice of a venue after oh. New Zealand, isn't it? Mm. How was it in the big city? 
it's just the most beautiful place in the whole wide world. And I come from the South Island of New Zealand, which is like kind of renowned for being quite pretty. Mm-hmm. But the Outer Hebrides is the absolute business. It's there's nowhere like it. It is stunning. It's the most beautiful place ever. People are mental in the like the best possible way. And I always say, because I was out there in the noughties and Little Britain and League of Gentlemen was still on the telly. And every one of those characters is real and they live out there. Like every one of them. Like we it was it's hilarious. So so you ended up in, in the Outer Hebrides. <laughs> I your, did. Taste, your taste of Britain. <laughs> well, I um because I was locoming the whole time I was over here. So I did two years in New Zealand and mixed practice, and then a few months in Thailand. Like I started doing lots of volunteer work. So I was in Thailand quite a bit. And then to earn money, I'd locum in the UK. So right. I would always choose jobs that were on islands if I could. So the Outer Hebrides and Guernsey and Orkney. Um the or Isle just- of West Sussex as well. Yes, I did. Yes. Locuming was great because I traveled a lot. So I did a lot of traveling in amongst that. And, you know, locuming was amazing for being free and being able to choose what, you know, if you want to work a week, you did. And if you didn't, then you didn't. And that was brilliant. But it's, it is hard going. And I was talking to someone in the last couple of days, actually, and she's been same age as me, but she's been in practice the entire time. So we've lived these two quite different lives in, in, within the veterinary world. And, we're talking about how if she's been in the same practice as well, which you think is quite a real bonus when it comes to client trust and client relationships. And I said, oh, you know, I locumed the whole time. So I never had that. Um, so you always had much higher risk of complaints or of, of clients just not trusting you or not believing you when they don't, just, they just don't know you. Plus, you know, I have an accent, I'm foreign. Um, you know, maybe it's an accent people like, but it's still a foreigner. And there was, there was definitely aspects of that with clients that was an issue and it does it definitely wore on me the not just whether a client complains but just yeah if there's if there's any kind of niggle with a client that it was we I took it quite personally mm-hmm. um as if they were judging they were judging me personally and I was talking to this other vet the other day and she said even in a practice she's been in since I think she's been there since 2007 she still feels that that if a client thinks she hasn't done the right thing how it affects her personally because being a vet and being a good vet is well at that time for me it was our self-worth it is it's the core of who we are and if someone thinks that we're not a good vet that's very personal and and I admit that I never I never found a way around that I didn't know how to I couldn't I couldn't make that better I couldn't reason around it I probably could now with a whole lot of hindsight and a lot more learning. But at that time, I couldn't find a way of dealing with that sort of feeling of almost being personally attacked all the time, anytime any client didn't like me. Yeah, but it's funny. It's more than a personal attack, isn't it? I mean, if, if a client comes in and says, I really don't like the look of you, you know, why don't you grow some hair or <laughs> you're a bit taller or, or, or you know, I hate your accent, yeah. rolls off me. You know, mm-hmm. I may be momentarily taken aback. The fact, yeah. But if, if they say, I think you're a crap vet, the, the, to me is much more hurtful it is yeah because it was everything yeah you're right I mean I yeah I could take a personal attack certainly but like but because whether you're a good vet was it's almost more than personal it was it was your self-worth and so and I also think um if I'd actually like when I actually made a mistake because we all make mistakes those times weren't so bad in a way that I could almost cope with it was the times when I believed I hadn't or I'd done the right thing for the animal, but the cl- I'd annoyed the client or whatever. Mm. Hadn't been you know, winning enough, hadn't been nice enough, whatever to them. And then they criticise you. I found that harder to cope with because it felt it was also like there was an unfairness aspect. Mm. And, yeah, I just I found all of that really difficult. And, and lots of things about practice are difficult. Lots of things are hard. Um, and lots of things I, with my learning now especially with ethics I think has really made a huge difference to how I understand the dynamics in practice and that's why I'm quite impassioned about ethics mm-hmm. and ethics teaching for vets because I I certainly found once I learned a lot more about ethics and animal ethics and different perspectives it dissipated a lot of what I used to call my frustration in practice I used to come home at the end of the day drink wine and feel really angry and really frustrated at so many of the clients. And it was because I couldn't (laughs) red wine for me all the way because I just couldn't, um, I couldn't put myself in their shoes. I couldn't see their perspective. 
perspective. I could only see my perspective. And the thing about animals is everyone has a very different perspective. There's a big spectrum in how we value them, what kind of moral weight we put on an individual. And, you know, vets, we might, we're sitting in one place and every person who comes to the door is going to be on a different place on that spectrum. And it's hard to cope with. And I couldn't at the time, and, but I could a lot better now. And I think ethics teaching makes a real difference in that and can really help a lot of people. A lot of vets do better consults, get better outcomes, but perhaps more crucially, feel better <laughs> and mm-hmm. cope with the, the moral distress that happens in practice a lot better. Because I think there's a lot of it. I have a theory on this then, Karen. Just humor me on this. Just humor me. When did you want to become a vet? Always. Birth. Okay. Yeah. Can never remember anything else. Right. So your whole identity, everything about you since always, forever, has been about becoming this thing. Yeah. A vet. So is it really unsurprising when you're not quite running on the same train tracks as a client or, or where a patient outcome doesn't go as you would like it to be, that it piles in on top of you that you have not succeeded. You might have done your best, but you haven't succeeded. And everything about you, though, and this isn't just you, Karen. I think it's, it's, the, it's the profession in general. And I, what fascinates me here is that I think the psychology side of things yeah. But so you you didn't make it into vet school first time. Mm. So you went to psychology. Mm. Okay. So you've worked through your vet course and you've gone through your vet career. And this psychology thing has reared its head again. Yeah. So and now you're tell us what you do now, Carol. Oh well. Yes. Just on that, I I I can't stress enough how (laughs) I'm going to tell you that I think everything's important that I do obviously but psychology psychology for everyone like psychology should be taught from primary school onwards you know we need to we should understand our brains we should understand how they work Mm. you know it's it's just so beneficial for life but I think you're absolutely right that in, in a profession like that you know the whole psychology of everything is massively under underutilized underlooked at and how much we could benefit from from a bit more intervention there but yeah so what really changed is I got really burnt out being a vet mm-hmm. as many do I found it really hard the only thing I enjoyed was doing voluntary work so I would work for the money and I'd come away to Greece or wherever and spay cats for fun mm-hmm. um, and that I loved so much because multiple things I love efficiency because I'm half Swiss so I'd get I'd get my like the, the, you know the efficiency of a nutrient trip for a week where you and the nurses are just firing and you boom 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 I just oh I loved it the teamwork the vibe the the buzz of it was amazing plus I really believed in what we were doing that we were really making these stray animals lives better as a community and as individuals by, by doing what we were doing and quite crucially I think for me at the time it was me as a vet or doctor directly helping a patient without anything in between. Yeah. There was no mediator. There was no owner. There was no ownership. It was There's me. No and I could make and I could make decisions based on my clinical knowledge and yeah, my ethical perspective as to what I thought was right for those individuals. I mean, mostly we were neutering, but there are decisions to be made. So I really valued that. And then going back into into practice where you then have, you go back to that tripartite relationship, which is where lots of the tension is and lots of the difficulty is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's what I did all of that. And then, but I was still burning out. And I found my little out, which was a job at Cats Protections. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And um, so I got a job as a field vet officer, which was an amazing job. Um, I think there's four of them now. At the time I did it, there was two of us. And I traveled, I had the southern half of the UK to travel around and I did all sorts of things from training staff and volunteers and and cats and cat diseases and and all that kind of stuff to a lot of working with vets in practice because pretty much every vet in practice touches a CP cat at some point, whether they're in care or recently honed, whatever. So it was, yeah, working with vets in practice, talking about shelter medicine, talking about early and neutering, talking about pragmatic approach to medicine, which is a thing here, but it's just what we were taught in New Zealand and it's just what farm vets do. So it's it's gaining momentum in this country, which is... Ah, Bring it, bring it. 
Yeah, but we're, we're, we're 10, 15 years behind on the curve there. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's a bit of that, that that, I guess, highlights the difference between working for a charity, doing charitable voluntary work, and you say direct work with a patient, because yeah. all other work we do with, with our companion animals as, as a vet is in this tripartite state. Mm. We're doing things for the animal that the owner wants. Mm. It's not directly what the animal needs always mm-hmm. or, or wants. How do we know what an animal wants? It's the compromise we've come to between the disease state we're seeing and the possibilities that exist to treat that disease state mm. and the owner's desires. And that can really muck the mind up, can't it? When, when we see a particular tunnel of treatment and the clients can't see that or can't afford that, and want something else that, that we firmly believe is not the right way forward. Yeah. And it's coming to that compromise, making a decision that ultimately will try and please everyone. But most important of all, we sleep at night because we know we've done the best job we can. Mm. It, it is difficult. because I, I mean, I turn that on its head even. I think the cases in practice that made me not sleep at night, that I found most difficult were what I would term now overtreatment or delayed euthanasia or futile treatments. And I found them common, in my opinion, okay, because it is subjective, I suppose. Mm. But I felt like bringing, like you say, what does, how do we know what an animal wants? I mean, we don't, right? But we can we can get our close to, closest approximation of it by using all available information. And that means knowing what that animal is, what their ethology is, what their behavioral needs are, what kind of, you know, what things are going to make that species and that individual have a good quality of life. And some owners are amazing at being able to assess that. I think many perhaps aren't as well, especially if I was to bang the drum for cats because there's so much misunderstanding around what a cat is and what a cat likes and what a cat needs. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, the ones that really bugged me were those ones where we kept them going and kept them going when they, sh- in my opinion, euthanasia was the right option. And I've talked about this a lot, actually, in the, some of the work I do now. And the idea that as a vet in that situation, if you're putting that renal failure cat on a drip for the fourth time, you know, every couple of weeks and it's sitting in a in a kennel feeling absolutely miserable, you are the physical instrument of torture. Yes. <laughs> Which I know is a tough statement to say, but you, you are, you're not just bearing witness to what you think is bad welfare. You're physically doing it. You're restraining that cat. You're putting that drip in. You're doing it to it. And I think that has a huge toll. Like if you think that you shouldn't be doing this thing to it and you're doing it, that's hard. And I've done a lot, when I look back with the benefit of hindsight, when I look back on my 10 years in career of some of the things I did to animals, I'm not happy about what I did. I did bad things. I did things I didn't agree with. I did things that were against what I thought was right. But it's because, and it's not just in small, I did it with large animals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you were, especially when you're young, when you're a new grad and you don't have the heft or the power behind you to say, no, this is what I think is right. Or no, I won't do that. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've got, obviously every vet I think has horror stories, but you know, I've got a good few horror stories of things I did because I didn't stand my ground and I was right. And the farmer or the owner was wrong and I did bad things. And they're really, they're really, they don't ever leave you. There were things I did 20 years ago that will never leave me. Hmm. I think I agree. I agree absolutely entirely, but, but you've, you've got to let that go because Otherwise, what ultimately what's going to happen to, to, to your brain? You're going to sit there as a quivering wreck in your dotage. And you go, oh, I wish I'd not put little whistles on that trip. But- well, now I write about them and I do ethical uh, the ethical analysis of them, and that's that sounds quite yeah. therapeutic, to be honest. And we justify it. We go back and we justify it. And we think, you know, at the time, it seemed to be the right thing to do to give yeah. the owner time to decide that, that, yes. that, that, that there was nothing more to do, or because while this was going on the cat being on the drip yes it was unpleasant but actually it was better for a few days afterwards so it was probably worth it and we make these little stories in our mind don't we just say well actually it was okay to do that when really we know, a lot of confirmation no. bias is what we do yes i was <laughs> yeah. just moving on to that because next time we come into the same set of circumstances it's easier to do that 
Mm. We've gone through the process. Which isn't necessarily a good thing because no. I don't think we're not having a balanced, we don't, we, in practice, I mean, the time, to have the time and space to be reflective on such things or to have, um, it's, it's a very new thing, but it's something I think is amazing if any clinics want to go ahead with this, but having ethical um, discussions or ethical rounds mm-hmm. after cases have happened where you can go back over either as a group, which is, is more useful actually, and talk about these things openly. The next it's, time it's those the cases happen, will be improved by that. Yeah, I think you're right. It's the same story that, that you often see vets who have been qualified for 20 years and they'll say, I've got 20 years of experience. And you know that they haven't. You know that what they've got is one year of experience 20 times over. Yeah. They've not, they've not looked with fresh eyes at every yeah. case and gone back and thought, no confirmation bias here. What is the best thing to do? Yeah. That's actually, that's a really interesting point because of this conversation I was having with someone the other day, this woman who's been in practice for the same time as I've been doing other things. Mm. She, we had that exact conversation because she had a reflection where she mentioned about something that had happened recently and how it made her think about something that her boss said to her when she was a new grad. And then we had this whole conversation about the experiences that we have in that first year out, that first God awful year out where we've suddenly got all responsibility and know nothing and it's terrifying. That, that those experiences that we have, then the things that our you know our senior vets say to us and the instruction they give us, they set, they set deep within us. They they are the core of the vet that we become. And you know, for good and ill. I mean, there are great things that we learn, there are also bad things that we learn. And it was just really it's amazing how pervasive these things are. And this was just like one comment her boss said to her in her first year and how it still comes back to her. And it was, it was not a helpful thing, let's put it that way, and how it still affects how she practices now. And she was only, only going through this reflective exercise and that made her realise the impact that had and that that was maybe something she could revisit mm. and change. And is she revisiting it now? Well, she is, yes, <laughs> because she's going through because um because of the power of reflection, I would like to mm-hmm. say, the power of learning via reflection. It's a beautiful thing. It, it is it is great. And actually, we um, we joke about it, Mike and I. Uh, yeah. I think rightly we joke about reflection. Yes. Uh, because one of the diktats of um of CPD these days is you can't yes, just have a CPD, you have to reflect on it. And it's become such a buzzword. No, it's up there with evidence-based medicine, we isn't it? We can easily caricature it. <laughs> you know, it is reflective learning. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> but the yeah. only way you can learn, actually, other than reciting, is to yeah. reflect, because reflection helps to assimilate the knowledge and allows you to be able to use that knowledge from a central point of the knowledge rather than being able to recite it from A to B. Well, I'm feeling guilty right now, Julian, because because of the way that we have uh, teased about reflection. Because I think I think Karen can put a whole new insight and a whole new direction on how we view reflection mm. and the value the value of reflection, and particularly in dealing with, let's face it, potentially post traumatic situations, um, which we have a few of every day as vets, which. Yeah. Karen has just alluded to very casually without actually putting that label onto it, because yeah. essentially that is what you, you're doing, isn't it? You're storing up a whole series of post-traumatic events yeah. deep in the psyche that are attacking exactly what it is that you have perceived yourself to be since yeah. you were yay high to a grasshopper and have worked your way towards. So have you got any coping oh, strategies? No. Sort of thing, Karen, or, or can you add something into that? There's, there's a lot of things that people do for coping and they're not good. I mean, it's all, it is all this. I mean, it, you sound like it's so trite. It is the, the usual stuff, but it is about the life outside of it. Obviously that's a, that is a major about having value in yourself that is outside of your vetness is crucial, but how people do that when they're working full time, practically impossible, right? Given the working hours and how it is. Yeah. I am a massive. Yeah. I mean, we'll get onto the, the world of ethics in a wee bit, I guess, but yeah, I think, I think there's a huge thing to be had of, of just of talking. So personal reflection is one thing, but that can be really hard. I think um, I think practices need to be instituting um, ethics rounds or case discussions where there can be open and honest chat 
um, without recrimination, where everyone can help you know, and actually talk about and talk about some feelings around it and and practice looking at different perspectives of a case and understanding a case. But having and, having ethic discussions, how do you see that fitting into your your average small animal practice and making it work? I'm stuttering here because I understand the pressures they're under. Mm-hmm. I understand how hard it is. I understand how many clients there are hammering at the door, how many consults I need to do, how many surgeries there are backed up, and that the idea of taking time to sit around with a cup of coffee for 40 mm-hmm. minutes and have a nice chat, I understand how massively unrealistic that will sound to, to mm-hmm. vets in practice. But this is where management's just got to step in. You know, I think this is absolute, you know, this is, it's got to be management. It doesn't have to be management-driven, but management's got to make it possible. It's got to make it happen. There's got to be a, okay, so here's this chunk of time that we do not book anything in for. Yeah, because, and to, to see it as important. And it, I mean, I can, it's it's important for so many reasons. It's important for mental health. It's important for team building. It's important for case outcomes. It's important for client relations. It's important for everything. It can only have good outcomes. Um, I think there is probably something to be gained. Here's me trying to make a job for myself. In, in large practices to have someone who can facilitate. I think that would be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's there's definitely a role for facilitators to get these things going. I think in time, maybe they won't be needed, but I think, you know, someone who can put structure to things and facilitate things and and manage conversations so that they, you know, nothing ever goes down kind of blamey, getting too clinical, because it, it doesn't actually have to be about the clinical often. Yeah. It's not about the detail of the clinical. It can It's, it's usually a wider thing than that. So I think there is, you know, there are roles there that probably need to be or support that needs to be provided. But I know that time is the real, the real problem. And it just fine, needs the staff need to be valued by by giving them this kind of time. It's a very fine line because you you're breaking into a a, a financial machine and time pressure, mm-hmm. clinical pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Are, are there any are there any labels or words you could put on there? Because the, the the word that's come to my mind here is it's almost like counselling for the team. Yeah. But that sort of makes it... it no, anyone's going to like that. <laughs> that depreciates it. It's not important. Yeah. We don't need to worry about it. And I'm, I'm thinking back here, you've reminded me, I spent, I think it was probably 35 years ago, a lot of time at um, Guy's and St. Thomas's ITU. Yeah. And I know I've, I've shared this with, with our listeners before, that at the end of every shift, before you got changed out of your scrubs, we would all sit in the um, in the changing room, in the common room area, and go back over what we had done and what had happened during that shift. I like your idea of yeah, end of shift huddles, though. That's a good, that's end, a good one. Yeah, an end of shift huddle, and you basically had to get how you felt it wasn't we should have done x y or z it wasn't if only you had done this or if only i had done that it was how do you feel about the loss of mrs jones Mm -hmm. and then once that was over you then got changed and left so you were leaving everything Mm -hmm. in the unit everything was or, or attempting to leave everything in the unit and discussing individual feelings. I love that. I think that's I think that's so beneficial. And isn't it a little bit worrying that that, like as you say, that was thirty years ago, and mm. the vet world we've just been just heads down, bums up, working our tails off without addressing any of this stuff. And, and I you think know it's a yeah. new idea for the profession, isn't it? And we're you know. I don't think I'm overblowing it. The profession's at a bit of a crisis point, you know, in, in multiple ways, not not just staffing, not just pressures, not just attrition from people like me leaving. It's there's 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 kind of a perfect storm of everything going on at the minute. And it's it's no one thing, but certainly vets' lives can be made better by a bit more attention to their emotional and mental health in practice. Yeah. 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 I think so. Because we're getting left behind the rest of society. Yeah, we really are. Kids growing up today are much more aware of their mental health requirements mm-hmm. than uh, the vets who've been qualified for 20, 30 years. Yeah, that is my hope that the, the vet students now and you know, the new graduates aren't so scared to stamp their feet and say no. You know, they're like, no, I won't do after us. No, I won't work, you know, 60 hours a week. And good on them. It's brilliant. Yeah, go yes, yes, I will have a lunch break. 
Yeah, it's the only way to change things is they band together and refuse. It's brilliant. Crack on. In the email you sent to Alicia, you gave a link to an ethics website. And I yeah, talk about that. I went Completely through and I did their little um, yeah. test start. Yeah. It's really interesting. It is. Do you know, I've been using that test since I first got shown it in like 2011. It's been around a long time. So I do it periodically. So I did it in 2011 and mm-hmm. was what I was. Then I did I did the um and I did a master's degree in welfare and behavior and I did it at the end of that I changed a bit mm-hmm. and every couple of years I do it because I use it in teaching um yeah I use it with um, students quite a lot and I, I do it myself every so often just to see because you evolve and you change yeah. and it's fascinating um, but it's it's really useful also because it gives it just gives I mean they're not the be all and end all of ethical constructs but you know it's a good grounding in a few. Hmm. Um, and also because it's done by Peter Sandow and the sort of Copenhagen crew, so it's got that Scandi feel, which is why things like animal integrity are there because that's quite a, a strong perspective in Scandinavia, this concept of integrity, and um, which is it's not it's a bit of a foreign concept for people here to to think about that. But yeah, yeah, I think that, that's that really threw me a bit. That's what. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't look yeah. at the um, I didn't look at their uh, deconstruction of me afterwards too much because I, I didn't know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, so I didn't really want to know. percent so and so or eight percent. I don't know. No, I think it's really it's I I would look at it if I were you because I think it's really interesting. And and I think the important thing about it is to understand how that you can change. Do you know what I mean? And because the way I get students, I get students to do it. And then I my very first ethics lesson with any students is an entire lesson of why you think what you think. Because and why you think what you think is right. Because by the way, it's not. It's just what you think. Because I think that's a big issue with vets is we we think something and we're like, oh, we're vets. Therefore, we're right about what we think about animals. We're, mm-hmm. we're right. We must be right because we're vets. We're not. We're still, it's still just an opinion. And we need to understand where those opinions have come from, understand our background, understand our previous experiences, understand our culture, to why we have that perspective and be a little bit more respectful that, okay, that's my perspective. Other people are going to have different ones that are different, and we need to, you know, not be so sort of uppity about ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah, yeah. We're, we're right in that your cat has hypothyroidism. Are, mm. are we right, and how do we judge that we're right? No. In, in what we do next? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll put it up. I'll send you some a couple of references, but the most useful one is um, it's Bachelor and McKeegan, and when do they do it? I'm going to say could be 2013, and it was just a little bit of um, Carol Bachelor's PhD with with Dorothy McKeegan. I don't know if you know her at Glasgow. To Emma Welferest teaches at Glasgow Vet School as well, and they they did this little survey of vets in practice, looking at their abilities and ethical decision making. So how good were they at using ethics and decision making? And they were using a test that's used in medics, right? Human medics, mm. and they. Sh- show that practicing vets were basically the ethical reasoning of 12-year-old kids. Like we've actually gone backwards. Do you know what I mean? So, like, we're growing in our ethical reasoning, and then we go through vet school and into vet, and we go backwards because we're not applying any ethical reasoning at all. We're just right. That's it. That's interesting. Terrifying. And we, we've, we've made our decisions yeah. on, on the treatments based on what we learned. There's, there's no reason to ever question those again. No, don't question it. That, that one statement answers so many questions <laughs> yeah. and brings into perspective so yeah. many behaviours yeah. we see in veterinary yeah. medicine yeah. in one but, little bit. Yeah, and these are difficult things to say because that sounds like a quite a, um, a harsh thing for me to say, but I feel like I can say it. I'm a vet and I was like that, really? 100%. That's who I was. And it, and I can hand on heart say it drove me mad. It was the basis of this frustration. It was the basis of why I drank wine. It was you know, the basis of what drove me mad as a vet because I couldn't, I wasn't reasoning. I didn't have any tools to do any of it with because we weren't taught any of this. Mm. Like we weren't taught ethics at Massey in the 90s. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no. So yeah, also explains why you can't argue with another vet, isn't it? Because two 12 year olds arguing is never gonna work, is it? Yeah. yeah. I like that. I, yeah. So but you're, you're so at the moment, you're um 
doing a PhD. I am. At the University yeah. of Sussex in the Department of M Mammal Communication and Cognitive Research. That's a bit of a yeah. mouthful, isn't it? It's, it is a bit, yeah. But yeah, which is, in, which is in the School of Psychology for my sin. So it, it all comes full circle in the end. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. And, and I've, I've looked at the, the other members of, of your team there and you know, there's some amazing stuff going on. Yeah. Elephant research and how chimpanzees oh, yeah. point and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but do you want to tell us about your PhD? I can, yeah. So I've, I'm coming near the end of it now, which is so I can actually talk about it because the first few years it's just you're just swimming and you have no idea what's going on and there's no way I could have explained it. But the way I like to talk about it is really it's um, I am in a school of psychology, but really it's an anthrozoology PhD. That's that's where I'm liking to position myself and. That's a term not everyone's heard, but it's it's the study of human and animal interactions. So it's looking at your human and non-human interactions. So anthrozoology is really film. Isa from the Greek, of course, anthros zoos. You know, humans. Yeah, lovely, lovely. Logos. So it's, so it's a discipline that's really uh, multidisciplinary. So you can come at anthrozoology from a like a full-on humanities, ethnographic, sociological perspective, which lots do. I'm much more of a sciencey perspective. I suppose. But um, the specific topic I'm looking at is I'm looking at dogs versus cats, really, in regards to whether or not they empathize with us. So there's a lot of studies looking at human empathy towards animals and then what, what we think of them, which is a whole area of research I am very interested in. But what I'm looking at is whether dogs and cats can empathize to us and for, for us. Oh, that's all, that's one strand of my research. But the other strand is, regardless of whether they can or not, do we think they can? And how does that affect how we think about them? Whoa. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. so, so yeah, you want to explain, I, mean, I, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what empathy is. Yeah. But, um, but not everyone does. And, 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 may, and maybe I've got the wrong idea of what empathy is. So do you want to just spend a few minutes telling us what, what empathy is? I could spend three hours telling you what empathy is because this is my this is my top tip for anyone wanting to do a big piece of research or a PhD, for example, is if you've got a key word like empathy in mind, make sure it's got a bloody definition before you start. Because in the science in the science world or in the psychology world, empathy does not have a definition. It has about five hundred definitions, and everyone has a bun fight over those definitions. And that makes your life really difficult. On one hand, and on the other hand, I asked the question because you said this when we met up at um, <laughs> Live Four uh, a few yeah. weeks back. So I thought that's a good question to ask. Absolutely, kind a short of. answer for. <laughs> <laughs> I think what what fascinates me about it is I think we've got the vernacular conversational use of empathy, which I think most people would agree is the idea of feeling the same as someone so someone's upset you feel upset you match your emotion to them and then you might do an action to help them all right mm -hmm. so there are some multiple levels to that and a lot of the empathy definitions include these levels the idea of um a transfer of emotion so you know, or a matching of emotion and then often on top of that an action to do something for it some definitions include in between those two things the idea of your brain knowing that it's them that feels that and that's why you're feeling it. This idea of it's what they call theory of mind, that you understand that someone else has their own subjective experience and it's different to yours and that the reason you feel sad is because they feel sad. So mm -hmm. some definitions need that bit in the middle. Mm -hmm. Regardless of all of that, the one thing about having millions of definitions and a bun fight over them is that I do get to choose which one I want to use and run with. And so the one I like to go with is um, Franz Duval, who he's a legend, um, who's done all this amazing research, most in chimpanzees. Um, so you mentioned about the chimpanzee pointing, because one of the people in our lab group is Dave Levins, who did his PhD with Franz Duval. So it's very mm. exciting. And Dave's a lovely guy. And um, so lots of their work looked at constellation behaviors in chimpanzees. So two chimps have a fight, and then a third chimp will go and be nice to the one who loses basically. So they noticed this behavior in their captive chimps. And then they did all these wonderful studies around it. And they called it constellation behavior, which they put into the bracket of, of empathy, basically. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, Franz has written lots, Franz, like he's my mate. <laughs> I have met him, but he's not my mate. Um, I wish. But yeah, he's written lots of stuff about um, chimpanzee empathy and theory of mind and lots of really interesting stuff. So sort of building on that, but looking at cats and dogs and dog research. Functional MRI is going to tell us in a few years' time that the chimp is really saying to the other one, God, you got your ass whipped there, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it will, though. I think it's going to prove everything. That's my thing. But um, yes, I mean, the work I'm doing is the work looking at whether they actually have, whether dogs and cats have these capacities. And one quite fun thing is, of course, there's a wealth of research in children, non yeah, pre-verbal children, so you know, one to two-year-old kids, um, looking at empathy development. So I can, because they're pre-verbal, they are, you know, they're not, like, lots of empathy research in humans is all about self-report, <clears throat> the typical psychology stuff. You, you tell us what you're thinking and what you're feeling. But of course, you can't do that with little kids because if they can't tell you, then they can't. So they have to get a bit more clever with designing experiments, which use their behavior and their actions. And luckily, we can use those same experience experiments then in non-verbal, non-humans, so cats and dogs. So that's that's one aspect of what I've done, which was an experiment done in 2013 in children where the experimenter faked a knee injury as if they'd banged their knee and were really in pain. And they watched what the little kids did in response to that. And if the kids went up to the person and said, oh, you know, and patted their shoulder or gave them a toy or rubbed their knee, they called that empathy and they showed mm-hmm. that children developed empathy anywhere between 18 months and two years of age, which was fun for me because when I started this PhD, I had an 18-month-old daughter and I watched her go through all the stages of that study, which was quite fun as she as she grew up. But so I've co-opted that study and I've done the same thing in dogs and cats with their owners. So it's a bonded human rather than a stranger. Um, faking a knee injury and I've filmed the dogs and cats so I wasn't in the room so I wasn't hopefully making too much of a confound in that regard and filmed what the cats and dogs did in response which is hilarious as you can imagine (laughs) Um, people are surprisingly good I've asked people to be as method as they can in their acting because they're doing you know visual they're doing sound but I want them to smell in distress as well it's quite hard to act a smell but Dogs and cats, of course, they use their sense of <laughs> they use their sense of smell hugely in in assessing their world and understanding their world, and so we we definitely are letting off pheromones when mm. we feel emotions, right? And there is a lovely study done by the um, Hungarian crew where they got people, I think, sadness, um, fear, a few other emotions, and they got swabs from under their arms, and then they just showed those swabs to dogs, and they looked at um, laterality, which nostril they sniffed at, because depending on which nostril is it's a crossover in the brain as to which side of the brain the processing is happening on. And emotions are more processed, or negative emotions are more likely to be processed on one side of the brain than the other. So they could show that they were using that nostril to sniff the negative emotion swabs. God, and do you know, I've, I've instantly thought of this little joke about two two dogs and one of them going up to the air and sniffing in the other saying, do you sniff with your right nostril there, you old softy? God, there you go. But, I think it's it's valid. It's possible. It's real. So, yeah. So, um, so basically I was trying to get my participants to be as meth, like I said to them, if you come away from this a bit sweaty and a bit upset, then that's brilliant. You know, you might've actually Hmm. got there. So yeah, I did this with, um, how many have I done? 40 of each species. Um, I did it in people's homes because I was Mm -hmm. doing dogs versus cats. You've got to do it at home. You don't move cats from their environment and expect Mm -hmm. them to, give you anything valid so everything was done in home and um I got to meet wonderful people and go to you know meet wonderful animals it was so much fun um I've got a bit of analysis to do but my preliminary results on sort of half of the data set showed that both dogs and cats were hugely affected by their owners acting the scenario so they've both Mm -hmm. completely changed their behaviors dogs did exactly what children did. They approached their owners, they touched their owners, they sniffed their knee, they licked their faces, they're very concerned. Sorry, my, my 18-month-old never did that. I'm going to be a bit worried, I'll be honest. So. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying every single dog did, but we're talking oh, about, you know, this is what we do as a, as a population. But yeah, on the whole, like, and very significantly, dogs gender, tended to do this. Mm. But cats 
at this point, I'm just doing it in quite a, a basic way, looking at person-orientated behaviors and non-person-oriented. So whether they're paying their owner attention versus just doing, you know, licking their butts and walking around like mm. animals. And so what the cats did was they also massively increased their person-orientated behaviors during the experiment. They did a control, obviously, as well. And um, but they didn't they didn't approach or touch their owners nearly so often. Some did, some did like the full-on thing, and it's just beautiful to watch. It like it nearly it makes you cry. Mm. It's gorgeous. But what most cats did was they stopped what they were doing, they became inactive. And they tended to orientate themselves side on. And I've got to analyze this as to which side they were turning to. But when they orientate side on, they can pay more auditory attention with their ear. They're going to be able to hear better from that side. Um, And they also looked and looked and looked and looked at their owners. So they pay their owners lots of attention, but it's very subtle. So it's the kind of behaviors that, that we don't notice so much. We notice People, you know, animals licking us and, oh, aren't they, aren't they loving us? We're not going to notice the cat sitting on the windowsill staring at us repeatedly. Mm-hmm. But what's going on inside the animal might be exactly the same. They might be feeling just the same and be just as concerned. But for those two different, very different species, and we have to always remember that, those two behaviors might make perfect sense. Dogs are highly social, mm-hmm. right? They're very facially orientated, you know, with the licking of the face and all that kind of stuff. That's that's a natural behavior for them to do. It's perfectly natural for a cat just to use attention through vision and, and auditory. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't make heaps of sense in a way for this asocial or solitary ancestor animal to come and approach us, to be honest, in that moment in yeah. time. So yeah. they may be doing the appropriate constellation behaviors for their species. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a fun one to do. Did, yeah. did- you have uh, did you have difficulty with the cats because I, I can imagine a cats you know we say that cats are a, a, a law unto themselves don't we and that uh, mm. you know they still remember when we worship them as gods <laughs> and all of that stuff but, uh, did, did it depend on the acting skills of your subjects because i can mm. imagine a cat going uh, oh, oh yawn if you think you're going to get an oscar for that performance <laughs> you better think again i'm going to go what you're still acting if i stub my toe or something and, and hop around the house going ow both my cats i think just look at me and go cool <laughs> <laughs> but are they or are we just seeing their more subtle behaviors and then we are putting an emotion of yeah we're putting a negative emotion onto it when it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a negative emotion. They could be like a negative emotion towards us. They could be, I mean, the idea is this is what we can't tell from this experiment, which but this is the thing I find most interesting. The experiment's exactly what they did in the children. When a kid does what the dogs do, boom, it's empathy. We assume that they were feeling those things inside, that there was emotional transfer and mm-hmm. there was theory of mind and then that they were doing an, a, a conscious action to help, right? We get, we just give mm-hmm. them that, just afford them that because they're a human, right? Mm-hmm. A dog does it. I'm never going to get it published by calling it empathy. It's just no one's going to let that happen because we're like, oh, it's subjective. We don't know what's going on inside their brain, blah, 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 blah. We can't assume any of that with a non-human. I think that's an interesting concept just as it is. Um, Franz, my buddy, Franz Deval, he has a great word, which I adore, called anthropodenial. So, yeah, yeah, anthropodenial. The idea, like, in exactly that situation, that we assume we afford things to humans that we would never afford to animals in the, in the absence of evidence, basically, right? Mm. Um, and that we'll always go for the lowest common denominator. We'll always go to the bottom with it. And we'll always deny rather than afford. And he's sort of arguing, like, why don't well, we just... Occam's razor, though, isn't it? But we could, couldn't we apply that Occam's razor to the children, too? Why don't we? Straight up speciesism. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. we can throw a bit of religion in there and we can throw in uh, uh, one of our favourites. Uh, is Descartes, was he not? Yeah. <laughs> Not my favourite. <laughs> Who, who's well? Not my favourite either. But the 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 level has been set. Yeah. yeah. We still respond to you know e- even people who are not familiar with Descartes or mm. some of the religious things. It, it's become part of our human it's, culture. It's just, they, the, just they the underlying was, of everything. 
Mm. Descartes was, I think, not 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 cogito ergo sum, but but it, it wasn't far off, was it? Mm. Um, and and um, Kant was, I I do, therefore I am, and Dooby Dooby Doo was Frank Sinatra. So I know that there's there's this sort of general uh, progression to. Uh, <laughs> How long have you been waiting to to knock that one out? The world about an hour. Everything <laughs> yeah. down here. No, ever since you mentioned no, Francis, little Frankie, little Frank, get, get Frankie in somehow. Yeah, he, he's, he's tried to get that one in for nearly a hundred episodes now. I'm afraid, Karen. And well, I'm, I'm very pleased he got there. Me yeah, too. I'm, 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 I'm empathising actually mentally with my wife because I, I really need a coffee. So I'm sending uh, some vibes out there. Yes, she'll feel it from you. Yeah. A, nice, a nice feeling that, that she's going to pick up on this. She's <laughs> very empathic as a, as a couple. Yeah. I've got a whole series of, of questions here that I, that I want to ask, but I'm mindful of the time as well. I know. I, I'm, I was about to say, I think we need to crack on to... Okay. To 60 seconds CPD. Okay, well, um, this isn't so much a CPD as a um, as in I'm not telling anyone anything. It's more of a raise of a question. Like in typical ethics style, there's no wrong or right answers. It's it's all about questions. But uh, that's perfect. We'll see how we go. Like reflection on that question. Yes, that would be. That's what I'm. Okay, so yeah, Karen, that's what are you going to give us a 60 second CPD on? I'm going to do a 60-second CPD on the idea of the autonomy principle and how it's used in veterinary medicine. I'm not even going to attempt that. <laughs> Karen. Hopefully it all will become mildly clear. Hopefully it is. 60 seconds on autonomy. Okay. Starting now. So why do we vets take informed consent from owners? Is it to do this thing called shared decision-making? Is it just to cover our butts when things don't go well? Or is it both of those things? As well as to adhere to the thing called the principle of autonomy. So autonomy is used in medical and bioethics and talks about our ability and right to choose for ourselves and have control over what happens to our bodies. Now in the vet world, we've co-opted this principle and its foot soldier, which is informed consent, but with a massive difference. Our patients don't exercise autonomy over treatment decisions like humans do. Instead, we give autonomy to clients who then make proxy decisions. And that's the status quo because of the elephant in every consult room, property law. So how autonomy and informed consent are used in vet med, I say, needs a serious rethink. And our profession should look at other constructs that are more suited to our tripartite decision making. For example, can I say one more sentence? Pediatricians work with proxy decision makers as well, and they use something called a best interest paradigm. And I really think that's something that we should consider. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's brilliant, Karen. Best interest paradigm. You opened another two hours of discussion. I did, yeah. You can't do, but you're absolutely right. Informed consent, what what is it about? And 90% of vets will say it's covering our ass. It is, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which but, is fair enough. But yeah, I just, I, I found it really, once I learned about this, I thought, that's really weird. I've just, it just seems wrong. We're just using it wrong. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you are interested, I will have a paper out discussing this in greater detail in Frontiers, hopefully soon. But, brilliant. Um, Frontiers, yes. So in, in, great, in, in much greater depth. And talking about all the dangers of how we're using autonomy and informed consent. There's been a couple of really great papers looking at informed consent in VET. Um, Carol Gray has written a couple and Vanessa Ashwell as well and and other authors have written some in the last maybe since about 2018 there's been a couple of really great papers really pulling apart informed consent and going um, we're not doing it right <laughs> it's all mm. sorts of weirdness um, and I'm taking I'm, I'm going one step back because informed consent is as I said just a foot soldier it's just like the it's the operational arm of the principle of autonomy so yeah I mean it goes so we want autonomy and here's the proof that we've got it yeah, yeah, but it's you know autonomy. The principle of autonomy came after came after World War Two, and the oh my god, did it work? Copy <laughs> arrived. Pure empathy. Amazing. Em- empathy works. Functional MRI. That. Well, this is te- telepathic. I've empathy. gone frozen. And and just by thinking about coffee, <laughs> a coffee arrived for Julian. I have a feeling there might have been an element of compromise um, because he did speak louder when he said, this is what I'm actually trying to do. 
And I said little text as well. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Brilliant stuff. That was a brilliant bit of CPD. And and I think think worthy of a CPD certificate. Absolutely. I just happen to have one here. Come on. Here we go. Here we go. And it's... It says certificate of empathy. <laughs> and then it says, when you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. But when you're yawning, what the heck does your cat do? <laughs> I wish I could tell you. I know. We didn't get into that. So the we haven't, no. Well, During we the- kind of can't because I haven't um, done the stats yet. So I don't know the answer. <laughs> I was going to say, because did you notice the experiment I ran? Yes, you yawned, and I deliberately But did Karen notice it, or was it glitching at the time? Oh, I didn't. I don't, did it, and did I yawn back? No. I don't think you did, no. No, you didn't. I did. I, no. I saw him. I saw his, his jaw slightly tightened, so he's, he's ignoring it deliberately. <laughs> yeah. And I think what you should have done, Julian, is let it go and seeing if Karen then joined in. I should have done. Because yeah. we'll do it. we should have been yawning at the same time. And whether we'll Karen... do it the next time we have Karen on. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Carry on. I, I intercede there, but no, no, that's referring to some work so about I mean, yawning. There's so many things here that we didn't touch on. Obviously, there's cats. There's my cat deliberately not yawning. Yes. I took that picture. I yawned the other day several times, and uh, she deliberately didn't yawn. But oddly enough, she always turned her face the same way. That is interesting. So hmm. um, I haven't noticed. Uh, you like wild swimming. We didn't touch on that. There's me wild swimming in a lake in um, Northumberland. Lovely. And there's me wild swimming in, uh, in Greece in a lovely warm place. Uh, yes. I think I showed this picture before. Um, I, I made a friend, so I was swimming, and suddenly this this chap came up and <laughs> put his arm around. Hey, we swim together. Yes, yes, we <laughs> apparently do. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a big convert to this. I, I went swimming this morning, seven a.m. I was down in the sea. Excellent. Good. Can't get me out now. It's it's a bizarre thing because I have always hated the sea, <laughs> very scared of waves, terrified of drowning, and really didn't like cold. And I wasn't, you know, you see people who sort of wade in a bit and then dive in. That was never me. I would take about half an hour. But now I'm just, yeah, I started in January in the depths of winter and completely addicted. Wow. It's amazing. If it doesn't, if it doesn't like physically hurt, I don't, I'm not sure what it's for. <laughs> Let's that, touch on another thing. We'll, 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 that, that's, for another, that's for another conversation. Yeah. Here's some delphiniums I grew a couple of years back because I know you were into gardening as well. Yeah. Um, and um, you you mentioned deer. I had a deer, but it appears to have disappeared mm. off the screen. But there we go. Well, it all bloody should because there's no hope of having a delphinium in my garden because of the bastard deer. The bastard deer coming and eat it. Um, and finally, uh, here is a picture of a, a bottle of Greek wine. This is uh, Dipos and a, 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 a canister of a canister, what do we call a carton <laughs> of banana juice. Oh. And to my mind, the best thing you can do with Greek white wine is mix it half and half with banana juice. And the, the resulting cocktail we call monkey juice, and it's delicious. Otherwise, you risk tearing your guts out if you drink Greek wine. Let's face it. I love Greeks. I do love Greece. The Greek wine. <laughs> it's it's banana it juice. Ancient. We we wouldn't we wouldn't drink wine. I mean that's alcohol, and we're here to work. So um, no, yeah. we're not drinking. Not drinking at all. No. no. Uh, I applaud that. I applaud that. I'm not drinking because it's only nine o'clock in the morning here. But I'll have that later. <laughs> no, I'll have a Negroni. And, um, he says, holding up one of the strongest gins known to man. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, wine and banana juice doesn't doesn't sound naturally pleasant. Try it. Yeah. White wine. White wine and banana juice. Mm. Really nice. Trust me. Uh, I think I ought to release you both to your lovely Greek day. And um, I need to go and prepare for, <laughs> for a school meeting. So uh, have fun. I won't. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Karen, thank you so much for coming on. 
we, we, we loved it. And we had a, a failed attempt the other day because of the, um, uh, the, the poor internet. internet in the UK. And it's worked pretty well using the yeah so from two different venues in greece and yes. uh, all the way to, to west sussex yeah absolutely it's it's been fabulous speaking with you karen i can't wait i'll see you in the bar later i'm sure but yeah thank you very much indeed. you've asked we've we've got more questions than answers i think there's, <laughs> there's no question about that and if any of our listeners have enjoyed what they've heard or you've got any questions from what we've raised today get in touch with us and don't forget click like and subscribe it really does help so we'd really appreciate that karen thank you very much indeed and i know a lot of your work is in cats but may your dog go with you may your dog go with you <laughs> cheers right back at you yamas yamas yamas, yamas. <laughs>